Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? My, my mask is stuck on my microphone, so you're going to have to give me just a minute. While you give me a minute, go ahead and open your Bibles up to John chapter 16. Here we go. John chapter 16. Um, today we're going to continue working our way through the, the Gospel of John. Um, looking at verses... 16 through 24. Okay. So as I began to kind of meditate, think through this passage, um, it, what we'll find today is this, really this incredible progression of sorrow that leads to joy, um, pain that leads to rejoicing, pain, sorrow that leads to um, celebration. And so as I began to think through that, I began to just think about where we are in America, where we are in society, and where everyone has been throughout just history. And I think that we all can't agree on everything, but I think one thing that we can agree on is that we live in a, a, a broken world, right? I think that we could all agree that we live in a fallen world, a world in which there is pain and sorrow. Uh, not only do we, we wrestle with our own personal struggles, our own personal depravity, our own sinful tendencies, but we're also faced with um, having to wrestle through other people's sinful tendencies, where other people will wrong us, other people will hurt us, reject us, inflict pain onto us. We will experience pain and sorrow in this life um, through our relationships with one another. But that's just one side of the coin. That's just a sliver of the pain and sorrow that we will experience in this life. We will also experience sickness. We will experience death. We will experience tragedy. Um, and so because we live in a fallen, a broken world, we will encounter things that inflict pain and sorrow onto us in our lives. And it's in these moments that we're left questioning you know, where is hope in the midst of this? Where can we find joy in the midst of this? How can we find joy in the midst of sorrow? How can we find joy in the midst of pain? And what we're seeing ultimately unravel throughout the Gospel of John is Jesus or, or God is using the greatest betrayal, the greatest evil, the greatest tragedy as the instrument to which that will bring us life and joy and happiness. As Jesus is hours away from his death, as he's hours away from the cross, he's been assuring his disciples that the future is going to be okay for them, that the future is going to be bright. So although clouds are rolling in at this moment, the sun is going to shine Again, Although the disciples' future will be marked with pain and suffering and persecution, they will experience a type of joy that is unparalleled to anything that they have ever experienced before. And that joy, as we will see in our passage today, will flow out of their understanding of the resurrection, out of them seeing Jesus Again, And so what we will see in our passage today is that the resurrection extends to us a type of joy that cannot be hindered by the trials we encounter in this life. So 
um, when we kind of look at just the structural layout of our passage today, uh, what we'll see is Jesus makes a statement in verse 16. And what we can't do is we can't take that statement in verse 16 and separate it from what we have been reading last week. Context is key. Um, and so we should interpret it within the, the context of last week's passage. But then what we see is the disciples begin to scratch their head and question and not understand what Jesus is saying to them. And so they begin to ask questions. And Jesus anticipates this questioning, and then he addresses this questioning by giving them an answer to what he's saying. And he begins to kind of expound on that, giving implications to the words that he's spoken. So how we're going to kind of structure this passage and how we read it is we're going to look at verse 16, unpack that a little bit. And then we'll look at the disciples' response, unpack that a little bit, and then we'll spend most of our time today unpacking Jesus' explanation to this passage. So let's first read verse 16. Jesus says this, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Okay, so... Putting myself in the disciples' shoes, this is probably a very strange thing to hear, right? So, so kind of like a, a, a magician, like you're going to see me, I'm going to disappear, and you're not going to see me, but then I'll, I'll be back. So how, how does that happen? In a, in a short little while, poof, he's going to be gone. But then in a short little while, abracadabra, and he will be back, okay? So, so how does this happen? So for those of you who have read ahead in the Gospel of John, what do we think that Jesus is referring to here? Muffled response would be, we don't know. Okay, Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? So he's speaking to his coming death on the cross and his soon resurrection, that he will again rise from the dead in a few hours. Jesus is going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be hung on a cross to die. And when he dies, he's going to be placed in a tomb. He is going to go away. And Jesus' disciples at that point will no longer be able to see Jesus. But the story doesn't end there, right? It doesn't end at the cross. Jesus is telling his disciples that it doesn't end there. What we will see is that the disciples will see him again. And so the one who died on the cross will rise from the dead. In a little while, they will see him again. Now, this is a point that we've made pretty consistently throughout the past several months as we're in this farewell discourse of uh, Jesus's life. And that point that we've been making, I think, is worth repeating. And that point is this, is if, is if Jesus has been speaking about his death and resurrection before it happens, then that means his death and resurrection is calculated and a part of his plan. So the cross did not catch Jesus by surprise. We have to constantly remind ourselves of that truth. It did not catch him by surprise. So if Jesus' death on the cross was not a surprise, but it was planned and calculated, then that means the cross is ultimately a display of power, not weakness. So no one took his life from him. He laid it down. On the cross. Nobody took his life, he laid it down. Jesus knew the cross was coming, yet he walked toward it. And so before it ever happened, Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to leave and return. He's going to die and resurrect. And if he's telling them beforehand, then that means he's still on the throne when it happens. 
All right, let's continue reading and see how the disciples respond to this news. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So the, we see confusion is, is prevalent within the, the minds of the disciples at this point. I think the end of verse 18 perfectly summarizes these two verses. We do not know what he is talking about. So Peter is looking to John and he's saying, bro, what in the world is he saying? And John's going, I don't know. Nobody knows what Jesus is saying at this point in time. The disciples are confused and they're asking questions. Now, I think that's pretty straightforward. There's not much to unpack there. Uh, but one thing I noticed as I was reading through this is verse 17. The disciples repeat what Jesus is saying in verse 16, nearly word for word. There's just a, a couple little um, differences. But they also add a statement to their list of things that they're confused over. They're also confused over the statement, because I am going to the Father. So that's new. That's not in verse 16. That's actually found in verse 10. And so although it's tempting to separate verses 16 through 24 from verses 4 through uh, 15, we can't do that. We have to remember that this is one fluid conversation. The disciples are confused over 16 and what he said in 15. They're all in all confused over what Jesus has been telling them. And so in last week's passage, Jesus was telling his disciples, again, that it's better for him to go away because when he goes away, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to send the helper. And because he goes away, the Holy Spirit is going to come to, one, convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's, two, going to guide them into all truth. And then he's ultimately going to glorify Jesus. And so Jesus is telling his disciples that the future is going to be okay. You must not worry about the future. Do not be sorrowful about it. He is leaving to return to the Father. And he's telling his disciples that this is going to be to their advantage. But they do not understand what Jesus is telling them. So they are confused at this point in the Gospel of John. Let's continue reading. Verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while you will see me. So in verse 19... Jesus recognizes their confusion, and he begins to address it. And then in verse 20, he begins to explain and unpack the implications of what it is that he's been telling them. And what's interesting is, as we begin to look at the response that Jesus gives here, is Jesus doesn't really specifically address the question that they're asking. Do you see that? So rather than point blank saying, hey, I'm going to die on the cross and I'm going to resurrect, it begins to explain the emotions that they feel whenever he leaves and returns, which ultimately alludes to what he's going to accomplish. So look at verse 20. Let's continue reading. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So rather than point blank say, me leaving equals me dying, and me returning equals me resurrecting, 
Jesus is, is saying, me going away will lead to your heartache and pain. It will lead to you weeping and lamenting. And so in the Gospel of John, as I began to kind of double-click on those words, as I began to study it, looking at weeping and lamenting, those two words are, are actions that are always expressed in response to death. Okay, so if you remember back to chapter 11, Mary and Jesus both wept over the death of Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus. In chapter 20, I, like you have ingrained fear in me every time I say the word Lazarus. I think I said it wrong. In chapter 20, fast forward in chapter 20, Mary weeps over the death of Jesus. So when we see these words weeping and lamenting, these are words that are always closely connected to what one feels and experiences when they encounter the death of a loved one. So these are strong emotions that are tied to death. So that means that Jesus is ultimately alluding to how he's going to leave. He's not just packing his bags and going across sea. He's going to die. He's indirectly telling them that he is going to die, which is going to cause them immense, uncontrollable pain and suffering. But what we see in this verse is while the disciples are weeping and lamenting, the world is rejoicing. So if you're an underliner in your Bible, Grab your pen, underline that word rejoice in verse 20, and then go down to verse 22 and underline that word rejoice again. I think we're going to see a really interesting progression in those words. That's the same word used in both of those verses. And this rejoicing that we see here is, is an emotion or an action that's directly tied to joy and celebration. Okay, It's what you feel whenever you see something come to fruition that you've been longing for. It's something that you see and feel whenever you are, are excited and want to celebrate something. So a long time ago, back in 2013, Florida State won the national championship against Auburn. Do you guys remember that game? Any Auburn fans in here? No? Okay. Well, good. Um, so Florida State won, and I felt a sense of rejoicing. I was excited. We're struggling. It, so I'm glad you're doing this. Um, I'm glad you touched my rear on live television. Um, I can't. All right, so we'll just continue on this illustration. Um, you didn't want to put it back? Um, yeah, so I, I felt a sense of rejoicing celebration when Florida State beat Auburn in the national championship. So when Auburn fans were sorrowful, I was rejoicing. And so I want you to underline those two words and take note of them because in a minute what we're going to see is this incredible progression in how John uses those words. But before we do that, uh, here in verse 20, we see that the world is going to rejoice over the fact that Jesus is leaving. The death of Jesus, his crucifixion, is going to lead to the world's celebration. They will celebrate, they will rejoice, because they will think that they have won by putting him in the tomb. For three days, in the world's eyes, it appears that Jesus had been defeated and that the enemy had won. But Jesus makes it clear here in verse 16 that the world's celebration is going to be short-lived. The thing that will cause the disciples pain, him going away, him dying on the cross, 
will diminish and go away whenever Jesus returns. So Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And so this is transformative language that we see here. Did any of you ever used to, as a kid, pick up caterpillars, put them in a shoebox, put some leaves in there, and then try to watch those things turn into a caterpillar, or turn into a caterpillar, turn into a butterfly or a moth? You remember that? No, I'm the only one. Uh, yeah, so you, you sit and you watch, and eventually that caterpillar, something that once crawled, will turn into something with wings, and that will fly. And so what we see here is their sorrow will turn into joy. This is transformative language, like a caterpillar turning into a beautiful little butterfly. Uh, Bugs Life quote. Their sorrow will turn into joy. Their tears will turn into laughter. Loss will turn into gain. Defeat will turn into victory. And so what Jesus is seeking to tell his disciples is that the joy that is found in the resurrection far outweighs the sorrow that will come from the cross. What will look like a loss will actually be a win. The resurrection will replace sorrow with joy. As we continue to read, we will then see Jesus give his disciples an illustration to expound on this truth. An illustration that might be lost on all of the men in the room, and an illustration that might terrify the 84 pregnant women in this room. If you've read ahead, you might know what I'm talking about. Jesus says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So let's make an obvious statement really quick, one that hopefully we can all agree on. The birth-giving process is a painful process. The moms in the room are going, yes. So the process of becoming a mom is a difficult one, a painful one. A little human being is making his or her way out of your body. That's painful. And so this hurts, or so I've been told. I've never experienced said pain, but I've witnessed it. I've seen it. The closer that baby gets to the light, the more the screaming, the more the tears come, the more a woman is likely to have screamed obscenities to her husband. At least that's what Wayne has told me. <laughs> but what happens after that baby pops out? Gets cleaned up and is in mom's arms. The tears of agony stop. Although there may still be pain, that pain immediately becomes forgotten. Mama no longer remembers the anguish that she once felt. Mama no longer feels the need to squeeze dad's hand as tightly as she was once squeezing it. The joy that comes from the life of your child outweighs and trumps the pain that comes from childbirth. And I think that's why moms want to do it again several months later, several <clears throat> years later. On the same way, the joy that comes from the resurrection, Jesus is saying, outweighs and trumps the pain that comes from the suffering that will be found at the cross. Their sorrow will be short-lived. 
Jesus says in verse 22, he makes the connection. So also you have sorrow now, but you will see again, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So notice the progression here. A few moments ago, I told you to underline rejoice in verse 20, and now in verse 22, well, we've come to verse 22. I don't want us to breeze over that forget progression, because in verse 20, we see the world rejoicing over the death of Jesus. But now you see the disciples rejoicing over the resurrection of Jesus. The enemy got to celebrate for three days. The disciples get to celebrate for eternity. I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So the joy and the rejoicing that the world felt was stripped from them the moment Jesus rose from the grave. The enemy loses. Sin has been crushed. Death has been defeated. Jesus wins. And seeing Jesus risen from the dead, the world will have no more reason to rejoice. But Jesus' disciples, they will have every reason to rejoice. So contrary to the, the short-lived celebration of the world in verse 20, the disciples rejoicing will not be diminished. Jesus tells his, tells his disciples, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So let's just pause there for a moment and just think about that reality. Given the context of everything that Jesus has said up until this point, this is a remarkable statement. If you just go back to the start of chapter 16, Jesus made it crystal clear that his disciples are going to experience pain. They are going to experience persecution. They're going to experience heartbreak and sorrow. They're going to be ostracized by the world. They're going to be killed by the world on behalf of the name of Jesus. Things are not going to go well for Jesus' disciples. But now he's telling his disciples that no one will be able to take your joy from you. You may be persecuted, you may be killed, but none of that will be able to take your joy from you. So how can that be? How can one have joy in the midst of calamity? How can one have joy, how can one rejoice when they're experiencing suffering? Well, I think a careful look at Jesus' words here in verse 22 gives us the answer. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So when do their hearts begin to rejoice? Their hearts begin to rejoice when they see Jesus again, when Jesus rises from the dead. And so the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus rising from the dead, is the moment that they begin to rejoice even when they continue to suffer. So let's make that personal for a moment. The resurrection of Jesus gives you a reason to rejoice even when you suffer. The resurrection gives you a reason to rejoice even when you suffer. We have to remember this. So if your joy, if your identity, if your identity is wrapped up in anything other than Jesus, then you're in for a roller coaster of a life, right? You will rejoice and you'll celebrate and you'll have joy 
whenever you get a promotion or whenever you get a good doctor's report or whenever you're able to go on vacation or whenever you get to date that guy that you've always wanted to date, when life is going well for you, then you have reason to celebrate. But what happens the moment that things when, when things don't go well for you? What happens when that boyfriend breaks up with you or when you don't get a good doctor's report or when you get let go from your job, when everything is stripped from you, where do you find your joy? Well, what we see here is that the resurrection gives us hope, gives us joy, even in the midst of suffering. If your joy and identity is wrapped up in anything other than Jesus, then you're in for a roller coaster of a life. You'll be grasping for air, unable to obtain and keep joy. But if your joy, if your life, if your hope is rooted in Jesus, then no one, nothing can take that joy from you, can take that hope from you because Christ is risen. So put another way, the resurrection gives us a joy that cannot be touched. And I think this is why Paul says in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So you get laid off your job, your, ten, your eternal hope is still secured. No, that cannot separate you from God's love for you in Christ. You get a bad report from the doctor. Your eternal hope is still secure. You get dumped. Your eternal hope is secure. No matter what suffering we encounter in this life, our eternal hope in Christ is secure. So not a single trial that you encounter in this life is capable of putting Jesus back in the grave. And the fact that Jesus is not in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem, but is now with the Father in heaven preparing a place for us, that should give us true, lasting, immovable joy, no matter what our circumstances bring. The resurrection gives you and I a reason to rejoice, even in the midst of the greatest heartaches and pain. The resurrection gives us an immovable hope even in the midst of the darkest moments of our life. And so as I began to just kind of sit and meditate and think through the resurrection this week, I, I jotted down six things just in a lot of this text and in a lot of scripture. There could be more, probably is, but what the resurrection tells us. The resurrection tells us first that our greatest need, which is atonement for our sins, has been met, has been accomplished. Sin has been dealt with viciously on the cross. Our sin has, and it has been finished. God's plan of redemption was successful. Our Savior is victorious. The enemy is crushed. Our hope is alive. And our relationship with God has been restored through faith in Jesus. So where do we find hope? Where do we find joy? What gives us a reason to rejoice in the midst of trials? The resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus' disciples will be able to see him again, the fact that he rose from the dead. So let's continue reading. Look at verses 23 and 24. In that day you will ask me nothing. <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
So the first question that I asked is, as I was reading these verses, is what day is he referring to? Right? In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Well, given the context, I think he's referring to the time after he returns to his disciples. So this is a, a post-resurrection time. Uh, after Jesus dies, after he resurrects, the disciples will begin to ask nothing of him. So in the day that Jesus returns from the dead, the disciples will not ask. Um, now, there's two different words used in the Greek for ask in these two sentences in this one verse, verse 23. The first use in this sentence, first sentence in verse 23, is more of an inquiring, you know, a questioning. It's an asking that's centered around information or a, a lack of understanding of information, similar to what the disciples have been doing to Jesus up until this point. Jesus makes a statement. They don't understand, and so they're asking for clarity. We don't know what you're saying. And so Jesus says something, they scratch their head, he brings clarity. Jesus is therefore saying that the disciples, when he resurrects and returns, will no longer ask Jesus of anything. In other words, there's no longer going to be any concern or questions concerning who Jesus is, what he said, what he came to accomplish. There's going to be no more confusion for their disciples. The resurrection is going to bring clarity. But then we see in the second sentence in verse 23, this, this different type of asking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So the asking we see here is not an inquiring and a questioning, but it's a requesting. Similar to what we saw back in chapter 4 when Jesus gets to the woman uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he requests, he asks for a drink of water. This is the kind of asking that we see here. So Jesus is saying that whatever you ask, whatever you request from the Father, the Father will give you in the day that Jesus resurrects, or after that timing. Now, there's three words in that sentence should, that should catch our attention, right? Do we know what those words are? In my name. So in Jesus' name. This is why we say in Jesus' name, amen. Right? This, that's the magical formula to get what you want from God when you're praying. If you don't say it, God's not listening. False. Uh, it, that's not a password to unlock answered prayer. Praying in Jesus' name, what I think we ultimately see here, means to, to humbly come in Jesus' merit, not our own. Okay? So let's, let's tease that out. You and I can have access to God only because what Christ has done on the cross, right? We can't approach God, ask for things, and him give it because we are righteous, because we are good, because we are deserving. I think we would all say, yeah, I get that, but sometimes I think as we pray, we, we think that, right? Sometimes we pray a little more boldly because we, we haven't been struggling with sin, or sometimes we don't pray because, man, we've just really been giving in to sin. We've been struggling, so we don't feel like God will listen to us. So praying in the name of Jesus means we humbly come to Jesus or humbly come to the Father because of Jesus' merit, because of his righteousness, not our own. So because Jesus, the creator of all things, the one who never sinned, died and rose from the dead, you and I, through faith, have been adopted into God's family. We are now children of God. The bloodshed of Jesus cleanses us from our sin to the point that we can stand before him holy and blameless and 
above reproach before God. So the only reason why we have access to the Father is because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We have no rights to demand or ask anything good from God on our own. But in Christ, we now have access to boldly approach the throne of God. And this is good news. And so Jesus says, up until this point, they've asked nothing in his name. But whenever Jesus dies and rises, whenever the work is finished, they will have this opportunity. And then he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I don't want us to miss the incredible invitation that we see here in these verses. The almighty God of the universe is inviting us to come to him in prayer. The one who sits on the throne above all is saying, come to me, pray. Whatever you ask, he will give. He's not just inviting us to, to come to him in prayers so that he can shut us down. He, he won't just hear our prayers, say, I'll come to that later. No, he will answer them. The almighty God of the universe is inviting us to come to him in prayer. Now, disclaimer, Jesus has already made it abundantly clear up until this point in the Gospel of John uh, that that our asking will be centered around the Father being glorified in the Son. So he, he talks about that, I think, in chapter 14. And then he makes it clear that those who abide in Jesus will experience this answered prayer. <clears throat> and now a continuation, what we see in these verses is that answered prayer strengthens our joy in Jesus all the more. So asking you will receive that your joy may be full, that your joy may be complete, satisfied, filled up to the brim. And so as one whose hope and joy is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, your joys should increase the more you walk with God in prayer. As one whose hope and joy is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, your joy should increase the more you walk with God in prayer. So let's kind of land the plane, make this applicable. Does your faith reside in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, taking upon himself the punishment that you rightfully deserve? Do you believe he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death? Do you believe he has ascended to heaven, returned to the Father, seated at the right hand of God, preparing a place for you? If the answer is yes, then take comfort in knowing that God is inviting you to come to him in prayer. We do not serve a distant God. We serve a God who wants to be in relationship with you. And he's telling you that he will answer your prayers. And so church, my prayer this week is that joy will be stirred up in our hearts as we gaze at the fact that Jesus has risen. Right? I want us to be a church that is joyful in all seasons. As I think through the, the, the place that the majority of the people in our church right now, a lot of us are struggling. There's been death, there's been sickness, there's been cancer. There, things have been difficult for the, the life of those in the church. But what Jesus is saying here in this verse, what we're seeing is that 
the joy that comes from the, the resurrection is immovable. Like we can find joy even in the midst of suffering. So I want our joy to be full. I want us to be a church that's joyful in the good times and in the bad times. Therefore, we must constantly fix our eyes not on the things around us, but on Jesus. And then I want us to be, my prayer is that we will be a church that fervently prays. That we will read this passage and take God up on this incredible invitation to come to him in prayer. Because when we do, our joy will increase. So here's my challenge to you, and this has been my challenge to myself, is to get out your prayer journal. Go buy a prayer journal if you do not have one, or dust off your prayer journal, or continue to use your prayer journal wherever you are in that spectrum. What I've found as I look through scripture is prayer is often communal, something we do as a church, something we will do as community groups. We will pray for one another. So I want you to begin to intentionally pray for those around you. Pray for one another and write out those prayer requests and track them. And what you will begin to see is God answering prayer. And I promise you, when you begin to see God remaining faithful, your joy will increase. Your desire to serve him all the more will increase. And so some of you may have no idea how that logistically works. So I want to give you a peek behind the curtain of how I'm trying to navigate praying for those around me. I've made a document. Uh, just really simple of like I have this little binder I've hot glued my papers together and so hey name Bryce Porter community group um, so on and so forth conversion story this helps me get to know this individual and then prayer needs needs help on X was that prayer answered and I have a date next to it so this allows me to work through this journal and say okay back in July this is what was going on in their life and I've been praying and you're checking up on them and then hey when that prayer has been answered you can go and jot that down so track your prayers see God remain faithful it will stir up your joy in the Lord all the more if you want a PDF document of something like this let me know I can help you get to a place where we can be intentional in praying for one another as a church so my prayer is that we will be a church that finds joy in the resurrection clings to that daily every hour, every minute of every day, but then that we are also intentional in praying for one another. So let's do that now.